episode 98 of corporate lunch a gq style podcast about clothes today um me and sam and rachel are going to talk to jeremy o'harris is that right yeah the former broadway playwright and everlasting fashion icon dial in that's right there you go thanks for that about town yeah he is man about town turned man about twitter Mm-hmm. Um, episode 98 our we were going to do our 100th episode at Disneyland with just like a we were going to rent the place out for the day and fly you know, in a whole plane of our fans fly we're negotiating in. the terms with Disney and with the NBA yeah that's right but uh, unfortunately it's just going to be another Zoom um, that we'll probably do in a few weeks if we get around to it been busy you know well, it's a lot of work to be a himbo, Noah. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad that himbos are finally trending and maybe we can get some, just raise some awareness for my people <laughs> and Sam's people. Sam's like a kind of a himbo. Yeah. I mean, all I've been doing in quarantine is tanning and push-ups. So <laughs> and I'm just also, becoming dumb and hot. Yeah, unlearning to read. <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly. Rachel, you're uh, you're actually technically on vacation right now, so thank you for joining us. It's my um, my glasses. Yeah, when I was on vacation, I did not show up. Hence, vacation is basically the same. Like I just look at Twitter, except yeah. I'm doing it on the beach and I'm eating chips. Like, <laughs> what kind of chips are you eating? Cape Sun chips? Cape, what? Cape Cod, dude. Oh, Cape Cod chips. Oh, it never That's occurred to me that that those are popular in Cape Cod. They're made right here in Cape Cod in Hyannis. Wow. They're also, I don't know if you have ever been to the Carlisle and had a martini, but um, when you do that, they bring you a little bowl of Cape Cod chips. Yeah, that's what they are. Mm-hmm. I, I've done that. I did some investigative reporting earlier in my career. I, didn't, I don't think I was aware that they, that, that they were Cape Cod mm-hmm. brand chips. Corporate snacks. Mm-hmm. Corporate snacks. Don't you guys miss having snacks? Individually wrapped Nature Valley bars. I sure do. <laughs> Just the right. Remember when that was? Remember when that was like the hot bent issue of the day? Yeah, media so drama. Media drama used to just be about like what kind of snacks they had in the kitchen and like who was sitting next to who in the cafeteria. Oh, you are stealing this from me. This what? is my theory that I've had. For years and ages and eons, all media stories are about snacks. <laughs> They're just snack stories. There's always a big, the nut graph is all about nuts. Yeah, good one. Thanks. Um, I actually write most of my own material. But can you, you write say, a lot of my material too, apparently. Can you say more about the snack theory? I didn't, I mean, this is pretty, sounds like you have it pretty evolved. Well, it's just like, you know, every story that we've heard, we've read over the past, I would say five to six years about a media company really gets down to, oh gosh, like they stopped having snacks and that's when I knew they were going to do a bunch of layoffs or like they started to have these elaborate snacks and it wasn't enough because they weren't even paying us a living wage. Like it it all, like the snacks are the the barometer for the company's uh, dramas. And and once, once like Google and Facebook came out, they really changed the corporate snacking game. And then when everyone heard about 
like the deluxe snacks that they were all giving away for free. It just totally put everything into perspective. And that was when I realized that, that I needed to make a career change. Mm-hmm. Well, the only reason why we got snacks was because Kande, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, whatever. Kande gave snacks to the technology people on their floor only because those are the, because those people could, you know, get a job at Facebook or Google in theory. So they got like a ping pong table, super Mario Kart or whatever it's called, and a ton of <laughs> snacks and beer and free cold brew. They were like, and so you then everyone from like our floor, and then everyone from other floors would go and just steal all the snacks. So they had to take away their snacks and like redistribute them to all the floors. Yeah. A little socialism from Condé Nast. <laughs> there you have it, folks. What are the best fashion snacks? Is Celine still selling those, selling those little biscuits? Oh my God. They were never selling them. They just, you, they gave them to you when you went to the store and you were trying things on. Oh. Celine water is really nice too. Yeah. Those little glass bottles of water. Nice. I used to, um, back when, back when there were fashion shows, I would collect pencils from showrooms. So I have a Celine pencil, a St. Laurent pencil, a Vuitton pencil, an wow. off-white pencil. Those were for like your, buy, for buyer's checklists? Exactly. That's smart. Do you guys miss shopping in real life retail? Do you miss being mistreated by sales associates or getting cute little text messages from the homies at Dover Street to let you know that the new delivery of uh, Casey Casey just came in? I really miss like when you when you're looking through the rack and you walk away and someone who's wearing like much more expensive clothing than you and is like beautifully immaculately groomed and works at the store walks over and just adjusts all the hangers like the tiniest bit like you're a monster like a big dog who's like doesn't know how big its body is and you've moved all the clothing around in this destructive sloppy way yeah i miss being told that um excuse me sir the billabong store is down the street i think you're in the wrong you're in the wrong place. <laughs> Pack Sun is around the corner. <laughs> so you need to wear pants in here. <laughs> but the stores are reopening. The brands are coming back, um, sort of, right? The stores are open in uh, New York. The phases, we're phasing up in life. The phases are phasing. We can all go shop and drink margaritas finally. People may not go shopping, but people are going to get really dressed. People are going to start wearing incredibly insane and bizarre clothes. Um, the stuff that they've been like saving up, like they've been, it, it's been pent up and it's just going to explode out of them. I think that's part of it. It's like stuff that's saved up, but it's also like a, a kind of um, mild mass psychosis that is driving everyone to express anxiety in, ex- in an exuberant way in all possible media. And one of those media is the very clothing that you put on your body. Well, I guess we're all sort of faced with that, um, the reality of not just like mortality, but like, are you, are you leading the life are you are you proud of what you do? Are you doing the things that excite you? Or are you holding back because of social pressure? Are you being your true self? Are you, or are you sort of like living 
every day, every minute, an hour of your life with like a bit of restraint that that is just that you could free yourself from. Mm-hmm. I don't really have anything. I have like an orange shirt. I guess I could wear. But back to himbos for a second because I just want to make sure I'm on the right side of this. Mm-hmm. Um, on the right side of history. Yeah. Are him are are himbos getting can himbos are getting canceled? No, himbos are are on the up. They're oh, getting- himbos are on the up. Right. We're saving himbos. Like stop <laughs> um, oppressing himbos. <laughs> it's a. It's a. I think it's going to be um, hot himbo summer. But there is a movement to, there is a reaction to the himboization and to himbo hegemony. everyone being into himbos, himbo hegemony. There are people who think that we should not actually idolize himbos because to do so is, I'm not sure what the reason is, but people seem to think that it's actually bad and toxic to. Akin to pedophilia, according to one social media um, yeah, that was really confusing to me. Because do himbos promote like misogynistic ideas? Is it related to No, because they're you're more intelligent than the himbo and therefore more powerful. Oh my god. Oh wow. Let's oh my go. god, I love that you're talking about the power of the himbo right when I <laughs> just like we wrote it up, just how we planned and, it. <laughs> I've been discussing um himbos a lot because I I don't date them. Because there was a girl that like tweeted this thing that I thought was really funny about how um, it's like it's sexual abuse to date a himbo or to fetishize dating a himbo because like why would you want to like have sex with someone with like less power than you? And I was like, but what if like I don't really want to date them or even necessarily have sex with them? I just really like having himbos in my life to like force to watch foreign films with. Me. <laughs> yeah. And then hear how they process them. Like, I love watching, like, I watched Synonyms the other night with a himbo. And um, every five seconds, he had, like, some question that I was like, this should be in the Criterion Guidebook to this. (laughs) Right. I feel like I'm I'm seeing it with new eyes. A special himbo commentary track. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. So You want to turn the himbo on, and it's a button on your remote control. The himbo button. Exactly. Exactly, because they can make you feel like even when you don't understand a smart movie, you do. Mm-hmm. You know, you're like, I'm definitely farther along than this person, you know? <laughs> There's some power in that, some beauty in that. Well, you've just, you've just called into the number one himbo fashion podcast, so uh, welcome. That's what we're all about. We're going to provide that commentary for you today. Can you name all the people that work at GQ who are himbos? Not without getting fired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel can do it. Well, two of them are here. Uh-huh. We just won't say which two. Sam's a himbo. Sam's like the twink version of a himbo. He's like a little, yeah. not quite like, don't you have to be kind of buff? Not that you're not buff, Sam, but you're not chiseled enough. I'm a little no, too, I'm there. a little too willowy, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, because a, a, him, a true himbo is like Chris, uh, uh, Chris Evans, I think it's Chris Evans, in um, Ghostbusters, <laughs> he had like the glasses or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like that was a true himbo, and then there was some other version of it that's the skinny guys who are like that. Mm-hmm. Thimbo? Thimbo, I think we can make that the thing. Speaking of working out, Jeremy, you said that you, uh, you this coming on the podcast today was giving you an excuse not to work out. What's the, uh, what's the regimen been like? Um, it's been really chaotic. Um, 
right before, like right after fashion week and right um, before I was going into rehearsal, I like, was like, I'm in London. I'm going to like reach, like change my life. I, I was also like getting ready for like the possible Met Gala and like the possible Tony Awards, you know? Um, so I was like, okay, cool. Like if I'm going to go this year, like I'm not going to do like a week and a half before rush to make sure I can like fit a 29. I'm just gonna like be that when I show up and like be like a tight 29 and not like a sort of like, oh, I guess it's a 29. <laughs> so um, so I was like, okay, cool. Like let's run every day. Let's like um, do like, I had a trainer and so like, he would train me digitally. And then as soon as COVID happened, I was like, okay, this will be what, like a month of this, I'll keep it up. And about two weeks in, I just like stopped answering my, the emails from my trainer. <laughs> and um, started spending less and less time taking little walks or runs outside and more and more time just sitting on the couch like watching anime for 12 consecutive hours. <laughs> um, and so my boyfriend came back last week or came back for my birthday, came to London. And I realized, because my boyfriend is a thimbo. He's like a real, like, uh, like he'll never like be bigger than 29 inches around his waist. It's like, I don't understand how that's possible. Um, and, uh, he, uh, like I saw him and I was like, oh, I'm a, I'm a walrus now. Like I literally <laughs> am a walrus. And I know that you're saying that I look beautiful. And like, I know that people online, I might say me myself looking at my body next to yours when they're cuddling, I feel like a walrus and I don't want to feel like this anymore. <laughs> so I've started running again for 30 minutes. So it's about, that's about seven of the 10 tracks on Lady Gaga's Chromatica. <laughs> um, and, and then I stopped, like, I stopped right after um, uh, uh, Sour Candy. And then um, I walk home. And then I do 100 crunches and 50 push-ups like a girl. Like the way they tell girls like to do in the, high school. On the, yeah. Yeah. On the, yeah. That's how yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow does them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm working my way back up to, like, you know, what I was doing with my trainer where he's like, you can do it. And I'm like, yes, I can. So today, instead of that workout, you get corporate lunch podcast with us yes corporate lunch podcast also i did a bit of yoga by adrian have you guys checked her out no, i've heard a lot about it though D i don't know everyone started doing it i liked it because she had yoga for writers which i was like you don't seem like a writer but she she knew how to get those spots in my back that are cramped up so mm. have you been doing a lot of writing in uh covid times yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I'm not writing very much. It's been like sort of my, my politic during COVID-19 and it's been like exacerbated now because of like a black racial, a racial uprising is um, I, I don't think the world needs anything from me except for me to be alive. And that's literally what I was saying during COVID. And then when like I got to have Black Lives Matter on top of it, I was like, see guys, what have I been telling you? <laughs> uh, so, uh, so yeah, so I think, but like what's what's good though is that I really did want, like it's been three years of me working nonstop, you know, or four years actually, because I started grad school. And then in my last year of grad school, I had two plays from off Broadway. And then the year after I immediately went to Broadway. And so that time that one would imagine that I would have had to take a break and take stock of like starting grad school is like basically poor and leaving with a Broadway show um hadn't happened and so for the last four months i've just been like taking stock and like refilling my creative well 
And that felt really fucking good. Yeah, and staying alive. Yeah, and staying alive. Um, were you planning on relocating to London for a significant amount of time? I know you, you had a show that you were opening, um, but were, were you planning on basically going and then coming back to New York? Um, like, yes, you sort of stranded yourself there now? Yeah, like, so what's funny is that this, I, I wasn't supposed to, like, basically, COVID-19 came and, like, stopped what, I mean, and it's so funny because I think that a lot of people, like, internalize COVID as, like, or, like, anthropomorphize COVID as, like, a fairy godmother or, like, a wicked witch that came to talk, do something specifically to their life, you know? But um, for me, uh, COVID-19 was, like, a sweet little fairy godmother who came to me and was like, no more work, honey. And, like, just, like, waved a wand <laughs> and, like, wiped away, like, what was going to be about seven more months of, like, intense hard work. Um, so I was supposed to open a play and then go back to New York um, and start rehearsals for a new play immediately after. And then there was like the possible chance of a West End transfer for this, in which case I would have had to come right back to London to like watch that show grow up on the West End, then go back for the Tonys and then the, um, and then Zola premiere at possibly a summer festival that was supposed to happen. And then it was going to open in, it was going to open wide. So it was going to be doing like a full tour all summer long before I started. So it was when I found out and I didn't have to go back to New York and I didn't have to start my life back. I was like, well, why not just live in like an indefinite pause in London? What's the vibe in London? Do you like London? And, and like, what's the energy? Are you getting out much? Or are you staying home watching I anime? I stayed home and watched anime a lot, but like, um, I don't know if you can see from my, so if you see those other windows over there, yeah. Yeah. Um, those, that, those windows belong to two guys who I could see from my kitchen and they could see, and I could see them in their kitchen from my kitchen. And uh, about like a week into COVID, I was like, what's going on over there? Like they have this like huge blowtorch, which like is like definitely illegal. And like, they were always like laughing and seemed to be having like a great little gay time. I just assumed they were like a sweet gay couple. Come to find out they're both himbos, you know, <laughs> who um, are jewelry makers. One's a jewelry maker, one's a jewelry seller. They're really amazing. And um, we, they, they just are bros that like make dinner and watch good movies together every night. So we started doing, after we saw each other wait two weeks to like make sure we didn't have coronavirus, we started like hanging out with each other and I would bring the wine and they would make the dinner. And um, I would also make the, the playlist of movies for us to watch. Mm -hmm. And so they've been so cool and they've introduced me to a lot of their friends and um, everyone that lives on my little muse is really interesting. But I also have a lot of great friends here. Like, so, like your last cover star and I are like buddies. And so he and I have hung out a couple times in London. He like, he and his girlfriend helped plan my birthday party, which was really nice. And um, Did he see yeah, the weird pasta. <laughs> uh, no, I sent his, his birthday was two weeks before mine, and I sent him pasta. Okay, because um, <laughs> I was like, you don't know how to make pasta, so I'm going to send you pasta. <laughs> um, but but no, he, uh, he 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 did do me one better, and like he got me like all of my favorite foods. Um, he and Sookie did, which is really nice. Has yeah, the, and then there. What? I was just gonna ask, has the uh, has the CIA fireworks conspiracy spread to London? 
Are there fireworks everywhere? No, like there, there are, are no fireworks in London, which is why I've been very like dubious of my friends with the fireworks. Um, but I have been like voraciously reading all of the theories. Yeah. And I presented my own the other day, which no one wants to engage with, but I think it's a legit one that people should look into. What is it? Which is that I don't think that they're fireworks. I think that they are aliens killing murder hornets. <laughs> mm. Those are the only two plots from 2020 that haven't been wrapped up. And dramaturgically, that makes the most sense for like what would be the third act reveal. Right. Um, or actually, this is the midpoint reveal. Is that like actually this like all these things that we've been hearing at night that have been keeping us up are not the government, have nothing to do with Trump or coronavirus. It's actually the aliens that they announced in May that we all forgot about. Yeah. You heard it here first on on uh, corporate lunch. Yeah, the idea that's too dangerous for Twitter is way too dangerous for Twitter. I mean, I just I don't know why it feels so insane to people that like a bunch of teens would be like buying firecrackers and like lighting them off. Also, did you guys read the Washington Post story where the where they like they showed all the theories and then they talked to like an actual like um uh, what do you call it uh, fire a pyrotechnics expert. And she was like, yeah, no, those aren't professional. Those are just like normal yeah. fireworks that you can get. And then they talked to like a guy who owns a fireworks store. He was like, yeah, dude, in May, people started buying fireworks. Crazy. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> like, it feels legit. Where are you in the fireworks world? Are you in, are you, did you, are you guys all still in New York? You, I see trees behind yeah, you. We're all outside of New York. I'm, I'm upstate on the Hudson River. Okay. I'm on Shelter Island. Okay. I'm in Cape Cod. Wow, so you guys are all wealthy. We're just <laughs> on vacation. <laughs> I love rich people. That's how you work at Condé Nast. Yeah, we're all in the yeah. summer homes, like the country homes we bought with our Condé Nast salaries. Yeah. <laughs> Zero interest loans hit different at Condé. Yeah. <laughs> how has, I mean, coronavirus has uh, affected every industry like pretty significantly, but in different ways, like, like, what's happened to like sports is different than what's happened to like the movie industry is what's different, you know, is different than what's happened to theater. Like wh what's the, what's, what has happened to these shows that you were working on? Are they, are a lot of things being postponed or is it harder to reschedule these shows because of the spaces and the, and the big casts? And like, I, I don't know how, how it works exactly. Like it's, it seems like a lot of movie releases have just been postponed and a lot of, um, you know, shoots and things have been pushed until, you know, Hollywood opens, whatever. Um, but what's the, what's like the, the outlook on the next, um, on like this fall and early next year in the theater world? Well, it's, it's kind of fucked because, um, you know, all of those things like also work along like privilege, lines of privilege and like, you know, um, and even like, uh, just like sort of the, the blunt reality of resources, which again, like aligns with privilege. So it's like, I am, I have friends who had their first shows that they've been working on for like four years, five years, like be post, like be completely like thrown away because COVID happened. Like they were supposed to go up. So it's just a big moment for them. And the theater's like, sorry, don't have the money to do it. We won't ever do it. Um, good luck next time with a new play. Um, and obviously after the year I've had, that hasn't been my position. And you know, I've, I've, my plays are mainly aligned with like really big theaters. Um, and moreover, like people know that I have a built-in audience now. So it's like harder to say they're gonna just like abandon my show. Um, but it, I mean, it, it's looking dire 
all around because I think people are starting to um, get antsy about like the future of a lot of these institutions um, because they so much of them are built around like subscriber um, subscriber models where where in like people pay like $150 for like a set of tickets to see like a bunch of shows. And a lot of people are still trying, like the older audience, they're still like trying to buy them all gung-ho. But also a lot, a lot of them are being like, wait, can I get a refund? Because I, I just read that LA theater isn't going to be open until like 2021. So why did I pay for this? Yeah. Um, I need to pay my gas bill or whatever the fuck they have to pay. So I think that's setting in. I think that like, you know, with all of the conversations about race and um, theaters having to have these real conversations about institutional racism, um, some restructuring's happening and a lot of theaters as we knew it won't be coming back in the same way. And I think that a lot of people are like melancholic and frustrated on like the sort of like level of like writers, actors, because like there's so much utter silence from the people in charge. And that silence is like indicative of like having political leadership that is inept. But um, it's also showing that their ineptitude like is like making it, uh, it's exacerbating an already bad situation. Because a lot of the people who run the theater like look to someone else to say what they should do. <laughs> and if everyone's looking around, like then no one's making a move. And so then artists are sitting around with their like, you know, fingers in their pockets, like being like, well, what the fuck? How am I gonna pay my rent next year? I had planned on being in like three different shows, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. you talking about like producers and like owners of Broadway theaters or like? Well, I, so if we talk about Broadway specifically, the Broadway League has been like uh, really bad at communicating with audiences about what's going on. And so like people on the inside of the theater, uh, if audiences and like, you know, uh, industry about what's going on. So a lot of people on like the inside of the theater, especially people who have like ears close to the Broadway league have known for like months that the Broadway wasn't coming back until like later, Jan like um, January at the earliest, right? But like, you know, when they made their first announcement, they're like, we're postponing till May. Then they're like, just kidding, till July. Then they're like, just kidding again, September. <laughs> and it's like, and then apparently tomorrow they're gonna announce that it's actually gonna be January 3rd. And a lot of that is financial, right? Because so that like theaters don't, theater, um, uh, shows that were opening like company or, you know, whatever, who have all these advanced ticket sales wouldn't just like drop all of their money in one fail swoop and be fucked. Um, but I think that transparency would have helped a lot of people feel like they could cope better yeah. um, in this time. But on the other hand, there are other people who are like, well, if I had known that, if I had known in March that theater was going to be back in January, I would have jumped off a bridge there, you know? So I think there's two sides to the coin, but I think that the thing that makes it very difficult is that there are people who have a, immense power in the theater and there are like 10 of them and they all seem to know what's going on and they aren't sharing what they know with the public in any way, shape or form. How is this, um, cause you've been working on some TV and film stuff too, right? I wonder how is this affecting how you feel about your own creative output? Does it make you feel like now could be a time to start moving away from theater towards other things? Or does it make you feel like the theater world needs you and you could help <laughs> solve some of this bullshit happening and like lead a charge forward towards something better for the theater world like wh where does this leave you kind of like creatively with what you're making 
Um, <laughs> sorry, when you said the theater world needs you, all I could hear in my head was like, they need rappers like me. <laughs> <laughs> the bad guy, me. Um, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I do think I do think that what's exciting is that like um, there are a lot of voices in the theater right now that are like loud, angry, and unapologetically critical of like the establishment who are also afforded that like ability for hypercriticality because they're some of the most awarded or lauded playwrights of their generation. So I'm like thinking about like Michael R. Jackson, for example, who you guys just wrote about. Like there's not a day where he's not calling someone out and it's like hard for anyone to be like, well, fuck him because he has a Pulitzer, you know? So he's like, <laughs> fuck you, I have a Pulitzer. Like this is why your theater sucks. And so I think that like, it's been great to be a part of that cohort of like um, thinkers and writers like that in the theater space. But I do think that I am getting fatigued at always having to criticize um, a system that like is so like hungry to stay. Uh, um, it feels like there's this like hunger for a lot of people in the power to stay irrelevant. Like a lot of people in power are just like sort of like, we don't care that only your grandma see our shows. We want it like that. Fuck the kids, fuck the poors. We like grannies. And I'm like, I like grannies too, but like, can my granny hang out with Little Nas X at a show or no? You know, and like, there seems to be like um, a real rejection of that, that idea that theater should move in that, in that way. And also there, there's a lot of like false equivalencies that start to happen that like, um, that like, you know, keep things like regressed. Um, but it, even in saying that like I'm tired of it, I'm constantly coming up with new ideas for ways that I would want to innovate or things that I want to introduce to the space and like people I'd want to bring to the space. Like today, like yesterday I had a meeting with a theater about um, doing a project that might mix like some of the work of some playwrights I really like was like the work of Jacoby Satterwhite and Martine Sims. And like, of course, theater people were like, I don't know who they are. And I was like, that's like not okay. But now you can know, and this could be like a really exciting conversation, you know? Um, and it, but I don't know, theater and film though, I mean, film and television though, are calling me more. And I think I'm really excited about entering in that space. But I think the only thing that's more frustrating about film and television than theater is that um, there's so much more money in film and television. Um, and that money means that like my time is not my own. Like I've have, I've have a three, uh, I have a, commission that I got three years ago from Lincoln Center and I still haven't turned it in and like if they asked me for it tomorrow I'd be like <laughs> you gave me seven thousand five hundred dollars like no thing <laughs> like keep it. Um, whereas like it's harder to do that with like an HBO or like uh, you know a Universal or a Warner Brothers because they're like um we paid you like over a hundred thousand dollars to write this thing and you're like yeah I know but like I kind of don't want to write it like <laughs> like and like, they're like, no, you have to. So um, I think there's that sort of losing out on some of that autonomy makes film and television a little bit more stifling. And it like makes sense why so many filmmakers that we love either come from money or come from Europe. Um, because like, if you don't come from money and you are in America and you want to make films, you have to be married to these like big corporations that like own your process and own what you're doing and like, kind of think more about the product than the art sometimes, if, whether they want to or not. It's just that like, they have to make money, you know? Um, and so I think I'm in this weird bubble of trying to figure that out um, while also trying to uh, figure that out while partnering with some people that I think are as like 
ethically capitalist as possible, um, which is also an impossibility probably. I don't know. I just brought you guys down the Ouroboros of my brain. Um, <laughs> when it comes to like, who you, I want to make for and how I want to make. How aware were you of like the, the fucked up ethics of the theater industry in school? Like, is that a part of, you know, like I know in some, in some like sort of creative um, graduate school programs, like in an MFA program for creative writing, they might make you like super aware of like what the process is to get an agent and publish a book. But like how much of like what you're saying now were you aware of before you really started like getting shows produced? It's so funny. I was talking to a, another playwright about this in a very like sort of like like because um, I I what I love is like this moment when like people are learning that like talking about how much you make isn't a bad thing. It's actually like a good thing to create like a healthier industry, right? And I was talking about it with someone else. I think an older playwright, and I was just like, uh, he was like, yeah, I'd never heard of it like that. I'd never thought of it like like the money part of it like this. And I was like, yeah, it's kind of fucked up that no one in grad school taught me like this, even though we had a class called industry practice. And the woman who taught that class, Jennifer, it was like one of my favorite professors. She was so great. But I think that a big part of like the sort of like graduate school or the like the graduate school like ideals of playwriting um, and also most art making like want to present, they, they can't tell everyone hey guys, I know there are only three of you here and nine of you in the full program, but only one of you will probably ever be someone that someone writes about consistently, right? Like you, only one of you will be Annie Baker and, and like, and maybe not even for the next three classes, maybe for the next like seven, and like, because that's a depressing thing to tell people. It's depressing to tell um, female playwrights, like you will, be, you will be produced like significantly less than the white male playwrights in your class. It like, is like frustrating to tell like a black playwright, like you might have a play go to Broadway and a white man who has a play premiere at a tiny theater will get a larger licensing agreement than you. Which is something I found out the other day. Um, which is like, just like something that is like a fact of our industry, right? Um, because you wanna keep everyone excited and hopeful that something will happen. And so a lot of this I found out early on. And I think the reason I found out even more than a lot of my peers is that I um, really, asked, I had a young producer on my first uh, Broadway play and I really asked to sit next to him in the driver's seat and help navigate the, the way. Um, and, I, and I think I did the same thing with my agent who's also really young. And so I've had a lot of luck of having people like just like open the contracts and like explain how all of them, where all the money goes, how it goes. Um, because that was my curiosity and that was where my excitement lay. Um, but I think it opened me up to parts of the industry that like might be better suited to like not know about sometimes. <laughs> I saw that I saw that you guys recently um, made a, a ten thousand dollar donation or Slave Play made a ten thousand dollar donation, um, which I thought was so cool because that was like six months after or five months after it had closed. And I was sort yeah. of like, and I was like, wow, I clearly don't know how plays work because there's still <laughs> clearly money flowing somehow through this through this show that, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. is off Broadway by now, but. I mean, something that was funny that I wanted to, that I was kind of going to when I was talking about how disingenuous people are about like, or the false equivalencies they make, like a lot of like, so if you talk to, even the way certain like um, theater uh, writers who talk about like the economics of theater, like write about plays, like they'll say about slave play, like, 
like slave play, like open, uh, like slave play was a very popular play, uh, com- uh, critically, but like closed at a financial loss, which like is like technically true, but it's also like ignorant of like how money works in the theater, and also ignorant of the fact that like it was never our intention to have our limited run be like a sort because the only way for our limited run for seventeen weeks to be, um, uh, like to have made money is if we had charged. Uh, significantly more for tickets than we had charged. Like we had charged like uh, our average ticket price is eighty nine dollars on purpose. Um, if our average ticket price was one hundred and forty dollars, which is like um, a little bit above average, but like sort of the average for like really high end popular shows, like it would have we would have like recouped within like six weeks, you know. Um, but like we actively wanted to try a different model because we wanted to figure out like other models for success of the show, but there's so much money that these shows have, even when they fail, quote unquote, um, that no one uh, talks about. So like the money we used for that was all of our Tony money. It was like, we had saved like, I think like $30,000 of our budget or whatever for like Tony stuff. And so we were like, we don't know if the Tonys will ever come back. And I recognize that like we do had to pay for like one commercial to remind people like why Slave Play could come back. But like, that's the 15K. Um, that we'll, and we'll just throw like half it for Black Lives Matter. Um, but it's really interesting to think about the economics of the theater and all the ways in which we could really start reinventing, um, reinventing the modes and models for recruitment so that we don't depend on having like Sarah Jessica Parker and Hugh Jackman and like a litany of other white people from TV shows, like Billy Crystal, like as the leads in the play. Um, that of every play you have to see, you know what I mean? Like it could be that like the lead of your play is the the best theater actor from New York, and you make a new Billy Crystal with them, and not like the other way around. And like I'm thinking about a lot of the things that we're that we're doing that that were in the can for us to do with Slave Play. Like one of the things that's really psychotic is that Slave Play was about to go back to Broadway before COVID happened, um, and like that's like a sort of like industry secret. We like haven't really talked about a lot but like it was gonna reopen and there was gonna be this huge sort of like um meta thing happening around the production that like we had to shutter uh because of you know uh covid but like you know even thinking about like some of the ways that we're um that we're gonna try to share the show with the public outside of just the fact of the book which like uh, the book of slave plays like the number one bestseller in LGBT and um, and African American plays on Amazon right now. Like those things excite me as things that people can look towards as like uh, methodologies to like make hard plays like work in that space for people like us, right? Did um, slave play hit the top of the Amazon charts? Like like is there a correlation between the protest movement and that happening? Like do you think that there's been a renewed interest in it? Um, well, it was the last month. So. During quarantine, it was like one of the most popular LGBT. It was like moving up the charts a lot during that. And it has been consistently, it was like number one bestseller in plays for a while. And then it was number one bestseller LGBT for a while. But then definitely like after the racial uprising, it went from like number four African-American play to like number one. And I think that like, I'm sure that like this week, like Fences is gonna beat me again, but for one, for the last two weeks, it was beating fences, which I thought was kind of crazy. Yeah. Because uh, fences is huge. Do you? Why do you think that is? Is it because of? I saw you tweet a couple of weeks ago. The fo- uh, there was a photo 
uh, from a protest, I'm not sure in which city, but it was um, white people were washing the feet of black Oh yeah, that was so crazy. At a protest, like the one of these like white people apologizing yeah. sort of things, and you were like, "Oh, this is like something out of my play." Yeah, no, I think that there there's been a lot of white people. Um, there have been a lot of white people, sort of, uh, and not just white. There've been there've been a lot of lists of books that people should read, and like um, somehow my play is like slipped onto like a bunch of them. And I think it's just because like, you know, people like you guys wrote about it so much that now like more culture people are like, well, here's my chance to write what I thought of it, um, which is cool, you know? Um, because like one of the things me and my friend, Rachel Carter Nelba, who she has her own pre theater press, which is one of my favorites. It's called Three Hole Press. But one of the reasons that she and I always wanted to think about how to publish plays differently or how to get plays into the world differently was because we were like, we want, plays to be like brought out of the ghetto of the drama section of the bookstore and like put on the new releases because like there's no reason why someone shouldn't read you know a strange loop when they go to, to get a new book you know i'm sure it'll be better than whatever jeffrey eugenity's book they get you know <laughs> or at least it'll be shorter i like jeffrey eugenity's <laughs> what is your what is your sense of i mean obviously like police brutality so much of what the current protest movement is fighting against is not something that's new and was certainly something that was happening when you wrote Slave Play, but the energy is new, the atmosphere is is at least different or whatever, we're in a different moment now. What is your sense of like how this work that you made, speaking of Slave Play specifically, how this work you made um, at a different time resonates with what's happening right now around the world? I mean, it's, I wonder how you like reckon with that or how you think of that. Well, I like to think of slave play as the main catalyst for every racial uprising that's happening in America right now. Like, I am directly responsible for it. I'm sure that's true. It. Um, <laughs> no, um, no, I think that, like, you know, there are a lot of factors, right? Like, I think that, first of all, a lot of people have been thinking about this for a very long time. Like, in the same period of time I wrote slave play and, like, since, you know, the, the moment when um, uh, Trayvon Martin died, like, you know, conversation. Ta has written like a, one of the best essays ever about like reparations, and you know, um, like we we've gone through all of these different like you know iterations of like identity being present in a um, multitude of ways on television and film, etc. And I think that like you know something that happened with George Floyd and Amy Cooper was that not only did those things both um, hit upon two specific triggers for an audience watching them, right? Like a white audience got to watch in real time how ostensibly the demon of white supremacy could just like come out of any of them, even if you own like a reclaimed dog from like, you know, an abuse shelter and walk through Central Park. Like they saw that like, no matter what, like that demon could like possess your body and like take over. And I think that triggered white people in a way that like was profound. And I think that uh, seeing George Floyd's uh, snuff film, which is what I call it, I call it a snuff film, and witnessing the in the same week the pure evil of someone holding uh, holding their knee on someone's neck and staring directly at a camera almost gleefully, really uh, I think articulated for white people something that black people had always known. And I think that you know not to give too much power to like white anger or white like empathy. Um, but I think that like 
the fact that white people run media um, means something about this moment. And I think that like, um, there was a, this was the first opportunity that like, black people didn't have to be completely alone in their anger and their frustration when they took to the streets. Like they were actually now like, as like fumbling and like messy as most of you are, white allies like able to like show up and be bodies at the protest and like be bodies consistently at the protest, not, <laughs> not only because they were angry, but also because there was nothing else to do, right? <laughs> like I think that like if George Floyd had happened and people could have gone out to dinner like after a protest, then like the protests would not have become what they became. But I think because like everything is shit right now, like a lot of people are upset that like Joe Biden is our main political um, hero of the moment. Like he's like, like sort of like the knight that we have to like go to battle with. And I think that like a lot of people are like, let's just show like the other side, all of the ways that they can't just fuck with us. Like you can't fuck with us in, in matters of race. You can't fuck with us in matters of class. You can't fuck with us politically. Like we will tear everything down. Like, like you know, we're tired of all the history. We're tired. I think that like all of those things galvanized um, in this really exciting and exhilarating way. And what I'm most interested in is like how how long this energy uh, will sustain itself. Like I think I see this sort of like um, nervousness, a similar nervousness I started to see like at the end of the Me Too moment. And not even the end of it, like what people perceive to be the end of the Me Too moment, where like there are people like, hey, don't forget, like these are the things that men need to do to like stop being fucking terrible. And I felt like uh, in that moment, like uh, that was when like sort of like the the um, it wasn't the babe.com, right? Babe.net. Yeah. Yeah, but that was when, like the babe.net of it all sort of like spiraled out and like everyone like that was like sort of the last dregs of like that flame yeah. of fire of like media being like attentive about like the ways in which men are destructive. Mm -hmm. And like, while any smart person knew that there would be no end to like us having these discourses like in a real way, I do think that like people did see that like that was a turning point cult culturally where like people were just like tired of looking at it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that what I'm really interested in is like, what's gonna be the turning point that makes people like tired of looking at this? Like, will it be Bubba Wallace at the NASCAR? Will it be, you know, um, you know, Trump at like Juneteenth and like basically like, you know, jacking off into a cup and doing nothing on stage, you know? Like, is that gonna be the one where we're like, oh, we finally neutered them, like yeah. we're good to go, you know? Is it gonna be like defunding the police in one more city? Will it be Breonna Taylor? Like, I don't know. But um, I'm interested in what what's gonna happen when like the veil returns to the eyes of like all of my white allies, because I definitely like know it will. And it's like um, a frustrating fact of this moment because for me, I don't, I still can't understand why so many people like actually say to me with a straight face that this is the first time that they've thought about these things this way. Cause I'm like, wait a second. Like, I remember having a fight with your mom about Trayvon Martin, like, huh. like, so long ago. Like, do we forget that another man said, I can't breathe, and his name was Eric Garner, and we were all talking about that for six months? Like, do we forget Sandra Bland? Like, I'm just like, how did we get to a place where people could, like, look at me with a straight face and be like, I don't know where this came from? Which is a part of what Slave Play was so deeply about, was like, this like consistent ability for like, especially a certain type of white liberal 
to like look black people in the face and be like, I don't commit violence and like then commit a violence right on top of it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, did that answer your question? I mean, I just ranted. I said like a bunch of weird shit. Yeah, that's what I'm, we do here. <laughs> this is the space for that. Yeah. yeah. I think that idea is so important that like the white liberal preference for the status quo is like so powerful that it can override like so many sort of like learned instincts and things that we learned at our fancy liberal arts schools or whatever. You know, people just like, at the end of the day, like if people had been able to go to dinner, you know, in a normal time, like, like, like out in New York, a lot of these protests basically just wouldn't have happened. And I think until we can sort of acknowledge that and think about why that is, why, you know, the vast majority of like white allies uh, would deep down like maybe rather be doing that stuff or like at least like really want the status quo to return in some level, you know, on some level, um, it's going to be harder to move forward. Um, I mean, switching gears a little bit, like you're, uh, you're such a fan of fashion. And uh, when I first met you, you were um, dripping in Bodhi and, and you still are right now uh, representing. Um, I mean, how do you judge like the response to the protest movement from the European fashion houses um, and just the fashion industry in general? Like, do you, do you, think that anything is gonna change? Like what, what's your, um, you know, a lot of brands were out there like posting black squares and um, yeah. kind of, you know, you know, releasing statements that said like, okay, like we see you, we hear you, we're listening and we're gonna, <laughs> you know, go back to Milan and like think about this and then maybe do something, mm -hmm. question mark. Like um, what's, your, what's your vibe on, on the fashion industry's sort of role in um, responding to and affecting change from here? I mean, it's like, what's frustrating is that like, I, I did the things that I could in my one, in my spaces of advocacy, right? Like, I like emailed Alessandro, like I emailed Daniel, or I didn't email, I called Daniel Roseberry from Scaparelli. Like, I talked to the people who like have access to like, um, the like sort of like halls of power and like said like, your work would be nothing without my black body and the black bodies of like a litany of other people that not only you've like gotten ideas from, but you've like also like literally profited from, you know, like if someone like Beyonce hadn't worn Scaparelli during Daniel's first season, then like would people care about Scaparelli in the same way for like the next season and the season after? Like probably not. And if they did, not in the same way, you know, because fucking Beyonce, right? And um, I was like, it would be really, I think it would be a really powerful gesture if like more of you guys showed up in a greater monetary, monetary fashion, not just now, but like made a commitment for like the rest of your time to like invest in these things and like black communities and like, you know, the communities that, um, that need this um, sort of funds the most, like, you know, in prison abolition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And like, I definitely was heard and listened to, but I think that at the end of the day, Italy is fucking racist. Um, and even if like an individual Italian isn't, like, you know, the country as, as a whole is. And I think that the country as a whole also um, isn't looking at America and saying like, that's our problem, right? Like that was literally like something that like they couldn't make sense of. Um, and it's like, they were like, well, we all just gave to COVID. Like what's, like, I don't know how we can like, keep getting like, well, you know, this doesn't seem like necessarily our fight, um, which was expected from me. I mean, at the end of the day, like, I don't think that any of the like late, like any of the major capitalist institutions that like 
I'm entangled with um, are ever going to be able to be truly ethical. I think that they can do like the small things that they can do to do their thing. So like, it was really, it's really amazing that Gucci has like created all these like, like sort of funds and grants and like are going to like um, be like inviting more like black people and brown people to the table to have that conversation. But like the only way that any of those things will be fixed is if the table is completely burned, destroyed and like raised over. And that's another thing that's complicated for me because I also like clothes, right? And so I'm trying to figure out where like my sense of um, loving uh, design and textures and um, having the ability to like sit next to great minds, like like great design minds, which is like what I truly feel when I sit next to a Daniel or a Nicola or a, a, a Grace Wells Bonner, you know, and we like talk about, you know, the beauty and the complexity of like constructing a shirt, which is like so dumb to a lot of people and so inconsequential. But I think like it's so a part of my black psychic life that like it will be, it would create a new black psychic death if I wasn't able to like um, uh, work with those things. But I think that like, you know, I, I'm recognizing that like in this moment, in this, in the space of privilege I have, there's very little I can do um, in a macro sense to like um, actually create like sub substantial change for the future of like um, black people who aren't at these seats of power in relationship to like the fashion industry. Um, because fashion is like uh, a, one of the greatest corruptors, <laughs> like one of the greatest psychic corruptors, I think, you know? Um, and like, does like so much of the work of capitalism that like um, in in the most insidious ways, and I still fucking love clothes. So I don't know. What to do. I mean, like I just got this fucking bag for my birthday, and I'm like obsessed. <laughs> and it's like, like I don't need that. Why do I have it? Well, there's um, the one. I mean, fashion has been completely broken by COVID. Maybe not completely broken, but severely uh, injured, let's say, sort of hobbling along. Yeah. And then um, and then now is reckoning with it's like systemic racism, as a lot of industries are. And I, I suppose there's hope in a sense that it's like fashion has a lot to rebuild, a lot to sort of like um, just kind of regenerate and rebuild itself after the damage it sustained from COVID. And hopefully within that, it can rebuild in a way that's a little more in line with what you're saying. But, but again, it's like very old European companies. I mean, like you said, what's happening in America doesn't feel like their problem so much or has. And also what's happening in Europe, they don't even see it. The racial inequities in Europe, they can't even see because like, there's so much homogeneity inside of like the like hallowed halls of a lot of these institutions that like um, because of like because of individuals who are able to be like individually um, uh, like kind and good to an individual black or brown person, they're able to like they they're able to ignore all of the ways that like. Um, companies in Paris ignore like Muslims and companies in Italy, like, you know, erase Africans and like, like uh, Italian Africans, right? Like they like, they're able to like really like ignore all of those systems that like um, are the, like the, that, that have the machinations of like 
um, the fashion world, like, uh, like historically in their countries, that like, it's like the problem is so much deeper than like America and Italy and France. And um, yeah, I don't, yeah, it's so frustrating because it's just like, you walk, I, 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 I'll never forget sitting in Paris at Fashion Week with like a bunch of Parisians, some of whom were black, and all of them telling me that like Paris didn't have racism um, in the same way that uh, America did. And I was like, yeah, I guess it doesn't happen in the same way, but it actually has it in a virulent way. They're like, oh no, it's not bad here. And I was like, uh, when have you guys ever had a black person in like, a, like running any major uh, political position in your country? And like no one can name like a black person on a high court. They definitely can name a black president. And I'm not saying like us having Clarence Thomas and Obama means that we're like, like, you know, post-racial, but it definitely means, it means something, right? That like, you know, we've been able to have like, you know, black and brown people and women in like significant roles of power in our country. Um, and these countries literally can't even imagine being led by a black or brown person. Um, I think it's something significant that they need to unpack, but yeah. You, uh, just speaking of like being in Europe and stuff, I mean, do you, have you found yourself wishing you were back in New York over these, these last few weeks versus? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. New York, see, I mean, that's why you guys aren't there. It seems like utter hell, right? Um, like right now I would be in a three bedroom apartment with my, with my roommate and his girlfriend. Um, and there's one TV. And I like sitting on the couch in my underwear watching anime for 12 hours during this whole thing. And I don't think they would like that. You know, I think they'd be like, why are you watching Haikyuu again? Um, I don't know that we need to watch another episode of Attack on Titan, Jeremy. Can we watch, you know, something else? And I don't want, know that I want to share this time with anyone, you know? Yeah. The, the, your, your time zone thing has really worked because now I wake up and I, you know, grab my phone and I check Twitter and there's a lot of good Jeremy tweets that are just already popping off from London. <laughs> <laughs> in New York, it's like it's like your prime time yeah yeah twitter's what is something i've been trying to like work on because all of my poet friends are so good at twitter and i was like there's something interesting in the fact that there aren't any theater people that are significant that are like especially good at twitter and i was like i want to learn the formula of making good tweets and start doing because it. it's, it's literally a map it's a new dramaturgy right <laughs> And when you can figure out that dramaturgy, you can like do it beautifully. There's actually a playwright that I'm obsessed with. Her name is um, Jasmine Lee Jones. And she wrote this play called Seven Methods of Killing Kylie Jenner. <laughs> and she understands the dramaturgy of tweets. So much so that like half of the play is our tweets. Oh, wow. <laughs> amazing. And it, it's truly genius. It's about these like little girls who decide to like, that after, um, Kylie Jenner is announced as a self-made billionaire. They're like, okay, it's time to finally kill this bitch. <laughs> like, here are the seven ways of killing Kylie Jenner. And um, it's, re it's really great. It's like Marlon James meets Darcy Wilder or something. Yes, yes, yes. Ugh. What up? Speaking of, I'm so sad that Marlon and I haven't been able to hang out. We hung out in Mexico. And he is one of the kindest, smartest people ever. And there's nothing I want to adapt more in the world than his... Um, than his second novel, Book of Night Women. Have you read it? I haven't. I have not. Uh, it's 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 very good quarantine reading. Yeah. I read I read that book like it was Harry Potter. That's how good it was. 
did you uh you posted that you went did you go shopping the other day i did go shopping did, the other I day. i saw dover street and then you you posted retail as hell <laughs> yeah i went to dover street i also went to um to uh not sainsbury's that's the grocery store uh selfridges i went to selfridges i wanted to go to liberty but it was closed um but that was my first time at selfridges um my second time at that dover street market because i went to that dover street market to get my outfit before i interviewed rihanna Mm -hmm. um but it was so amazing to be back in a shopping space although it in a post-covid environment where you still have to be six feet apart where like there aren't that many people shopping because they don't trust you yet, it did make it seem very dystopian. What, tell us more, what was the experience? Like, is it like, there's a few very cautious people in there, like not touching things? Like, Like, what did it feel like? And what was like- The people were touching things, but I was told that if I tried on anything, sort of like nervously, the girl was like, well, if you try this on, unfortunately we'll have to put it off the floor for 72 hours. I was like, what? (laughs) It takes 72 hours for it to, for the clothes to quarantine if you had COVID. And I was like, that seems psycho. Yeah. So that felt really bad for the clothes because I'm like, oh, there's only like three Grace Wells Vonner like shirts up here. So like, I'm just gonna like assume I'm a small and make sure I can fit it when I get home. Yeah. Um, because I don't want someone who like might need the medium to not be able to get it if they come tomorrow because I tried it on, you know? Yeah. When you ask for the size medium and they say it's in quarantine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Come back in 72 <laughs> hours. Exactly. So oh, I that's, um, dark. that's horrible. Yeah. And it was like basically me and like a bunch of like teens. Like it was like teens really don't give a fuck right now. <laughs> but oh, oh, other parts of the process that were interesting. Um so British people hate masks. They really, really hate masks. They like, don't believe in it. Like I think they think it's like improper or something. Yeah. So like I covered with my own mask and like all these people are like trying to hand out masks to other people and they're like, they're like, absolutely not. <laughs> So then um, they, they're like, well, if you're not gonna use a mask, you have to wash your hands and put on these gloves. So like they made everyone put on hand sanitizer and like grab these gloves. Um, the gloves are too small for me. So I used my own gloves because I carry gloves with me everywhere I go. Um, and then, um, yeah, like it was a lot of empty floors. Like I was on like the fifth floor by myself for like a solid hour. Um, and everything in the men's section was 50% off. Right. Yeah, they just opened on yeah. sale. Yeah. Yeah. I got um a pair of Rafston and shorts, like completely 50% off. I was like, this because they were brand new. Wow. I was like, that doesn't seem right. Um uh Selfridges not on sale. Yeah. Ah. Is yeah. that like their policy? Like they do they not do seasonal sales? They must. They just haven't done it. Well, Selfridges was popping. Like people uh-huh. like Selfridges was like full to the brim. Everyone was in Selfridges. It felt really cheap and gross um, because there were so many people there. Like there was something kind of like exclusive and like, you know, next level about it only being um, like me and like 10 teenagers in (laughs) Dover Street. Mm -hmm. But the minute I went to Selfridges and saw like half of London there, I was like, oh, I'm getting COVID. This feels like a beach in Florida. Like nothing here is expensive anymore. I must leave. I mean, you, you were been- at Paris. Fa- you were at Paris Fashion Week in February. Oh, right when it hit. Uh, yeah, I was at. I was at one of the like one of the event. major hot one of the major parties that turned out to be like uh, a like COVID hotspot. Do you think you've had it already? Like you, I mean, you might be good if you were if you were at the Miu Miu party. 
I yeah, I think I had it. Yo, know, you know about the Mimu party? Did I tell you about that? No, you so, talked about it on Chris. Yeah, I heard it on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I talk about I. I Mimu's never season. gonna invite anywhere else again. <laughs> I've been outing them as the party, but it was the party. It's just the fact. Did you get sick after, or you didn't notice? I I did feel sick after I came back, but it. I had none of the symptoms of COVID and a doctor checked me out and he said, I definitely didn't have COVID, but he didn't put the, a thing up my nose. So that was like when I came back from PT in January, I felt super sick, but I think it was just symptoms of partying and not symptoms of Northern yeah. COVID. Yeah. And like, when and I just had to have that like talk on this bottle and like, you know, dance until 5am and woke up at 9am, like every night, like you're undoubtedly going to come back with like a bit of a cough. You know, yeah. but I didn't even have like a COVID cough because I was like, I asked about it. Like, is this COVID? He's like, no, like there's phlegm in that cough. So, I think it was just like a smoker's cough. <laughs> Which, according to <laughs> David Hockney, actually prevents coronavirus. Yeah, I heard. I and and I am a a heavy smoker, and so I think that might be why I don't have coronavirus. But that is why running um a mile and a half makes me feel like I might die. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're glad we could give you the day off today. Yeah. I know. It's it's good, but like, I mean, I hope my body doesn't hate me for it. You need a rest day. Well, you look- I need to get on Chris Black's workout routine. Yeah. Himbo workout routine, I think. Not that Chris yeah. is a himbo, but that'll get you looking pretty buff. I think he's close though. Like what's the IQ have to be to not be a himbo? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> that laugh. <laughs> anyway, Jeremy, thank you for- um, Coming on, I think we're at time. Yeah, yeah, I have to get ready for a Zoom at 8.30. Thank you um, on, Jeremy. Thank you guys for having me. Also, um, can I make a request of GQ, since you guys are all right there? Yeah, like, the next time a cool black guy is gonna be the cover, can I write about it and not Will? <laughs> <laughs> Just tell Will like, hey, maybe Jeremy should write about Kanye this time. Okay. Uh, we can pass that to him. We can't promise anything necessarily right now, but We'll I don't want J. Cole. I've already, I had canceled him before No Name, so I was just happy that someone else could co-sign the cancel. But um, yeah, basically any other cool black well, guy. Well, we just I, did, I we just did Kanye, so who would be, who would be first on your list? It can't be, uh, you can't do him twice in one year. Yeah, no, who's the number one on my list? I mean, I'm, I feel like I have so many good questions for Drake, and since I've already interviewed Rihanna, that would be good. Um, I have, Oh, you know, I mean, but then again, I feel like a lot of the cool people that I would want you guys to put on your cover, you never would. So it doesn't like, matter. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, like, I feel like Isaac Julian is someone I really want to interview, but it's like, no one's going to put Isaac Julian on their cover. Um, who are some other important Black people this year? Oh, um, the uh, I would love to interview the guy from The Five Bloods, or also Spike Lee. Can I interview Spike Lee about The Five Bloods? Because I have a lot of questions. We, that movie was like accidentally a Godard film. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I feel like he knew he was making an experimental film, but I don't think Netflix did. So Netflix was sort of like, let's present this like it's just a film. Yeah. And I'm like, no, guys, I think he's like experimenting right now. Like, this isn't like just like a normal movie. And they're like, it is. And then all the critics wrote about it like it was just like some normal wartime movie. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, guys, like, don't mislead people just because you feel bad that black people are, de are dead right now. <laughs> just like, write about the movie you see and talk about the really interesting interventions he's making, like, artistically. Have you, do you know Spike or have you, have you interviewed him before? Do you know him? 
I've never interviewed him. I met him. Spike is very interesting. I love his daughter, Satchel. Satchel's great. Um, he's so interesting. He's like a very interesting figure. Oh, we talked on the phone one time because um, they wanted to make a, a thing about slave play and they were like pitching it to me. And they're like, you know, you should do it. Spike. And I was like, oh, okay. And they're like, he wants to talk to you. And they were like, I was like, he does? Huh? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they put him on three-way. And um, I was like, hello. And I, all I heard was like, <laughs> and he was like, hey, I'm on a yacht. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm on a yacht. What's going on? And they're like, oh, we got that guy that wrote Slave Play. And he's like, oh. And they're like, sorry, we can't hear you. He's like, yeah, I'm on a yacht. And then he's like, <laughs> Well, I, I want to ask him about that yacht. Too. Yeah, yeah, that's the first. That's the opening of the interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the right, we'll, we'll pencil it in on the lineup. Yeah, we'll get that on the lineup. <laughs> it's an amazing idea. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Thanks, Jeremy. Also, also. Oh, one yeah, last yeah, thing. Yeah. I'm recommending No Name for Person of the Year. All right. Okay. Oh yeah. Love I that. think that's the best Person of the Year for you guys. Yeah. But, so you'll probably say no. <laughs> We'll do our best. <laughs> okay, right, bye. Good to see bye. You. bye. Hey, man.